Hey friends, welcome to another episode of Behind the Headlines. Today, we're gonna to be talking with Gus Burns, who's been working on a story for the last 10 years. It's currently out on MLive.com, along with a podcast to go with it. Today, we're talking about Brianna Sharp and the Wayne County Jane and John Doe's. As I said, friends, our guest today, Gus Burns, who has been on the podcast many times, uh, this time talking about the Brianna Sharp story that came out last week. And my co-host, as always, the one, the only, the formidable John Heiner. How are you, my friend? I am feeling mighty formidable today, Eric. Um, I'm excited about that energy. <laughs> I got the energy going. And it's a Monday, although it, there are no days or hours in podcast land. So uh, we, we just exist on one plane at all times. But it's good to be back on Behind the Headlines. Good to see you, Eric. Uh, you know, we talk about remarkable stories on this podcast, but sometimes the the more remarkable story in some ways is how we got the story and we got one of the i think in my career i haven't seen a story that took so much effort and time and incubation to, to get to the finish line and uh talk about formidable we have today as our guest on behind the headlines the formidable the <laughs> fergus burns <laughs> Gus, welcome back to behind the headlines well i appreciate you having me thank you it's great to have you back I don't want to steal your thunder. I really want you to tell the story and the story behind the story. But uh, MLive readers in the past week were treated to, um, and I say treated to because there's some, some sad elements to this story, but some remarkable journalism by you about unidentified bodies in Michigan. Um, over 300 bodies that uh, over the, the past decades have been buried without uh, identifications and in some cases autopsies. Uh, you know, who are these people? Who are their families? And you put so much work into this. And honestly, I don't, in my 40 year career, I haven't seen somebody work 14 years on a story, uh, but you did. And you finally brought it to fruition. I want to talk about all of that. Um, and, but first of all, uh, anyone who saw these stories saw a face, a person who personified this it was a, a young girl named Brianna Sharp. And I'd like you to just tell our, our listeners today who that person was and, and why they personify this story. All right. Um, well, I mean, obviously, Brianna Sharp was a young girl who had a very chaotic life. I mean, she was moved around a lot. But I guess going all the way back to the beginning, um, I didn't hear about the story until 2012, which was someone, my boss at the time, had said, hey, check this out. There's this girl from Detroit who's been missing for about four years. And at that point, I don't think they had identified her yet, but she was a runaway. And so I was kind of keeping tabs on it, checking every couple of months and um, asking a few questions. But it was not, you know, a top priority at that time. And then and then all of a sudden it, there's a website called Web Sleuth. And then I was checked in on it and it showed uh, they have like a digital candle that is kind of like a beacon for missing kids to come home. And it was snuffed out. And that indicates that they have been found and identified and they're dead. So. Um, that sparked me, you know, calling medical examiners and police. And that led me to Brianna's father, who lives in Austin, Texas. And then he kind of, you know, unfurled this the story that, you know, his daughter had been sent up to Michigan to live with her mother, her siblings, her grandmother. And um, and then she just stopped calling and he couldn't reach her. He couldn't reach the family and come to find out she she had been discovered. And, and, and then in 2012, 
there well uh, all right let's go back a little here let me stop you right here let me stop you for a second I, when i said 14 years i'm tracking back to when she you know disappeared uh or you know when she was found excuse me right. and uh, you yeah you worked this for 10 years and also i think you wanted to write the story in 2012 which we can come back to why we didn't at the time but that extra time you put in really really showed in the the final stories the because the saga even though there's a lot of unidentified dead people, there's a lot about the family and the living people in here and that really gets into the legacy of her. Could you just quickly uh, go over the circumstances of how she was found and, and what they said she died of? Right. So uh, um, essentially she was buried as a Jane Doe for uh, four, well, she was buried for a couple of years, but she had been in the morgue for a couple of years as a Jane Doe. No one had come forward for her. Her parents didn't initially come forward. They were approached over a year later once her father got police involved. And then uh, the police started looking at unidentified bodies, thinking, you know, 13 year olds don't just disappear for four years and something probably bad happened. So they met, it was a Sarah Krabs, who's a detective with the state police. She was in head of missing children's unit. So she found this body. They exhumed the body, tested it, turned out to be Brianna. And then that leads back to like, well, what are the police reports associated with that? And that was Detroit police had found her in a, a it was a vacated apartment, a big apartment complex. And in one of the units, she was found on the steps and she had a TV cable cord wrapped around her neck. And it was went up the steps and around the corner and they uh, deemed it a suicide and they called it asphyxia by hanging. And that was determined, you know, very quickly. And then they, and that's really what the cause of death was listed on her death certificate. Was there an autopsy? Well, no, that, that was uh, something that, you know, one of the first questions I asked after I got the police records, I was interested in seeing the autopsy. And there was a lot of shiftiness going on when I was asking about that. Like I wasn't getting direct answers. And eventually I got uh, an examination, which is like the investigator who went to the scene. They took some pictures and then, then they had updated uh, some records once they exhumed her in 2012, but they weren't telling me right out there wasn't an autopsy. But as we dug in and through a lot of reporting over the years, it, it, we concluded that there was no autopsy conducted. And and there's other two big components to that were that police said that she looked like she was possibly pregnant and they requested a rape kit. And I don't know, a lot of people might know all the issues that were going on in rape kits back in 2008, but None of that. We couldn't find any records of any of that being done, any analysis of pregnancy or rape kit or sexual assault. Yeah, for the sake of our readers, Wayne County in Detroit, uh, notorious for thousands of rape kits that never get processed. Um, and, and that's been reported in previous years. Um, so she went into a, an unmarked grave at that point. Right. Uh, and the thing is, you can't, there doesn't look to be a lot of investigation to identify, at least out of Wayne County. And what they do is they do uh, dental imprints and they do fingerprints, or this is what was going on back then. Now they do DNA. Part of that is due to Brianna's case. But um, back then they were just, they would take your fingerprints, send it to the Detroit police if it wasn't in their database. All right. Not, next move was to get dental imprints and she had never been to a dentist. There was nothing to match it to. And there really doesn't appear based on records that there was anything else done beyond that, except for a waiting game. And they waited in vain because no one came forward. And then after um, over a year, they they send they send the bodies, both the unclaimed and the, those are the ones that people don't they don't have enough loved ones or don't have money to bury them properly. They just leave. They don't ever collect them. 
And then there's also the unidentified and they end up in, or at least they were ending up in suburban cemeteries and unmarked graves. Like they have a contract with a cemetery and they have a plot where they would put both the unclaimed and unidentified. And that's where Brianna ended up. There's like two avenues here that I'm fascinated by. And one, and you covered them, I think, brilliantly in your stories. But the one is the story of this person and, and not just how she personifies the bigger issue, but her life and how she how a 13 year old. I mean, after she died, um, it was months before she was reported missing. I mean, I, like, how does someone just disappear from the radar? Number one. And number two is the dysfunction that feels like dysfunction that exists when you have uh, bodies that are, you know, investigations that get cut off, no autopsies, they just get buried in unmarked graves. And the fact that there's over 300 of them, you know, how, how does that happen? But if we could go back to the story of Brianna herself, which ended up being just as fascinating as the larger picture, um, and your, your perseverance in tracking her down, because you actually went to Texas, correct? Yeah, that, that I mean, this kind of fit, feeds into what we were talking about when I, the initial story I'd spoken to Leonard Cobb, the father, and we were ready to move forward with the story at the time. And I guess we, we had determined, you know, there really we really didn't have enough because it was sort of accusatory in a lot of ways. He was he was saying, you know, that the mother hadn't reported her missing, but we didn't have all the the, the writing, all the reports because there wasn't much on it, on it, really. And it was difficult getting records. So we, we at the time kind of put it aside and said, you know, we need to get more before we before this is ready to report. Um, and it got kind of got backburnered for a while. But it never left my mind. I'm like, this is an important story, and I want to tell it. Whether I didn't at the time, I didn't really know what would happen with it. I thought in serial had just come out, so I was like really into serial style podcasts. So I'm like, oh, I want to do something about this case because it has so many facets to it. And I remember my boss and I at the time were talking about podcasts a lot. So I said, all right, well, I'm just going to start working on that. Whatever happens with it we'll see. But I, so I wanted to go meet Leonard and I had the time I was single, didn't have extra vacation time. So, and I lived in Texas before. So I figured I could, you know, two birds with one stone type thing, head down to Texas and see some friends and then head over to Austin. And that's really, you know, that kind of solidified it when, you know, once I met the father, you know, I saw what he was going through and how important this was to him to get the story out. And at the point I made a promise to him, you know, I'm I'm going to report this. Trust me. I mean, I'm going to do it. And then life changes, work changes. I was working on it hard for a, for a couple of years there. And it was mostly on my own time. I'm not going to say I never did anything during M Live time, but I was doing it, you know, mostly on nights and weekends when I was got all the recordings and interviews that I felt like I needed. I started putting it together in like 2018. And then life changes happened and it kind of got backburned again. And then it came back up because I'm working on this. M Live got into podcasting. I worked on the M Live Crime Stories podcast, and we're looking for a new topic. And so I pitched it, and luckily everyone was behind me pursuing it. So I got to bring it to light, and I think a lot of Leonard's very happy that people finally know what happened to his daughter, and they know the full truth. Oh, I mean not the full truth, but what they can. All right, there's still some you you chase some. I wouldn't say there were dead ends but people who wouldn't talk to you interviews you couldn't get um the mother is elusive um and she's the one who didn't report brianna missing for for months um talk about a little bit about how you fought through these dead ends to get the complete picture uh, i mean oh, 
a lot of it had to come through records. I mean, I interviewed the police involved at the time and they gave me their impressions of what happened. And around the time that I decided I was going to pursue this further and met with Leonard, I started heavily reaching out to the family members in Detroit. Um, there's a bunch of addresses. The family had moved quite a bit. So I spent a day in Detroit going to addresses, knocking on doors, leaving letters and had no luck. And then finally I got, I, I reached her sister who she was a year younger than Brianna and they were very close. And for her, it's always been a mystery. She didn't, she didn't really know much about it other than she was told her sister killed herself and she didn't know the details. And I was explaining to her what I had found and it really got her thinking and, and, you know, thinking back and addressing something that her family had kind of not discussed for, for those years in between. And then, um, so I met with her, we went, saw where Brianna died and, and then I was, she was trying to get me in touch with her mother, but her mother did not want to talk. There hasn't been really a clear explanation as to why she won't talk to me. Um, as we got closer to the end, I was reaching out through social media letters again, and then I knew where she worked. And so we went to, I went to her job, we trying to give her that last chance. Like, we're going to report the story. Do you want to be a part of it? And um, I found her working in a Detroit impound yard and I went in and she said she didn't, now was not a good time, she told me. And I handed her a letter and said, well, please give me a call. I'm going to be doing a story. I'd love to have your input and never heard back. Well, it's not a super surprise, but it, you were able to create and craft such a compelling picture, even without her um, speaking to you. Um, you did, through your reporting, learn that at the time of the disappearance, um, I think she lost parental rights uh, to other children. So you were able to find some documentation to add perspective to that. Right. We ended up getting CPS records. So um, Detective Krebs, I mean, she basically said she looked back at it and I think she probably had a little doubt that this was a clear cut suicide. But what she told me was, you know, it, I can't really go against a a law enforcement investigation that was concluded four years before I even knew the details and they don't really have the jurisdiction to overrule each other, that, that sort of thing. So, but she was concerned about the fact that there was no, that there was no reporting of Brianna missing. The only reason that came to be was because police came to Sabrina over a year after she had disappeared. And she'd also told police that she had spoken to Brianna on several occasions. Sabrina that, being the mother. Yeah, Sabrina, the mother, said she had spoken to her da missing daughter, and it later turned out that that was impossible because her daughter was already dead. So they pursued a, an investigation into that, um, and that's where a lot of those that CPS investigation stemmed from, and that resulted in her four remaining children being put with relatives or in, in foster care in some cases. The, the level of detail that you were able to get into the story uh, through your diligent reporting and the interviews you did with uh, Leonard and others had so much, I mean, what I call Easter eggs and stories, like where I'd have to stop <laughs> and digest it or reread something. Um, and one that really tripped me up was uh, the appearance of a former Detroit Tigers player uh, who now is an announcer for the Tigers in the story where for, it, it, he was purported to be her father and it didn't turn out to be the case, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that was surprising to me too, but um yeah apparently i mean these, these were an athletic athletic group of people leonard sabrina and they both were big track stars in high school and then craig monroe 
was a big baseball star. And they all went to the same high school in Texarkana, Texas. A lot of their, their families knew each other. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Leonard was the older of the, of the two. He went off to college. He was trying to become an Olympian in track. And meanwhile, uh, there was a relationship between him and Sabrina, uh, the, Brianna's mother, as well as Craig Monroe. And when Sabrina became pregnant, she said it was Craig Monroe's child. Um, and his family actually treated Brianna as their child. And and while they were doing, they were young and busy, her, her, Craig Monroe's parents or his father and his wife were the main caretakers of Brianna for a couple of years. So it was a kind of a big blow to them when they found out that they weren't actually blood related to Brianna. I mean, they were, you know, it was a, it was a surprise to them too when that came out. And, and and Craig Monroe was headed off toward on path to go to MLB. So, I, and I don't know exactly what prompted it, but he got a DNA test and it turned out it was not his daughter. So um, Craig was the, the other person who had been involved with Sabrina. And she said, yeah, it's, it's actually your kid. Right. And I think he's on the list of people that, that didn't want to talk to you for the story. Craig Monroe, yeah. Uh, I reached out. He's a little harder to reach because his number is not in public records. But I mean, I went through his the company he works for, uh, social media. I talked to his, was able to speak to his father um, and told him, you know, I'm trying to reach your son and never heard back. I mean, the, his involvement was in the disappearance was that Back when she was missing during that time period, there's some records showing that police had reached out to Craig Monroe and said, hey, are you willing to help publicize this missing person? And he said, yeah, I'm willing to do. We'll get the Detroit Tigers involved at the time he was playing. And um, it never came to fruition. I don't know if the state police didn't pursue that or they figured it out before it got to that point. But he was willing to help, according to the records I looked at. Mm-hmm. And on the list of people who wouldn't talk to you, I think one notable one, which also opens up this other avenue I want to talk about, is uh, the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. Yeah, I'm over. I mean, I've tried to talk to them about this specific case and even just generally about unidentified remains multiple times. Um, I mean, I I, requ- I sent multiple requests and they and I I got other people involved, the commission, and I just never heard back. They would just ignore my request. So we. Uh, I drove down to Dr. Carl Schmidt's house on the border of Ohio in a little community and knocked on the door I had, and he answered the door. And I told him, you know, I'm working on these stories. I'd love to <laughs> talk to somebody from Wayne County. And he said, I need to talk to my uh, my supervisors to get clearance for that. And shortly after, it's, he's still employed. It's kind of complicated, but he he will be departing as the Wayne County Medical Examiner. Um, right now, I think he might still officially be, but there, there's a big shift going on with the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. They were working with University of Michigan to provide services. University of Michigan's pulling out of that, and now they're switching over to Wayne State University. So there's a big changes going on with that. But office. that's not related to the Brianna Sharp case or anything you're reporting. I mean, to some extent. I mean, this was a. If you go back to 2013, this is when they realized they had. They were burying all these people without collecting DNA. So, I mean, that was kind of a big thing back then. They're like, well, it was pretty common in the industry of medical examiners to keep biological tissue on somebody that you're going to bury that you don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. And Wayne County was not doing that up until about 2013, which is, you know, shortly after they had to exhume Brianna to figure out who she was. Um, so, I mean, it plays into it. And then throughout the years there's been more issues um just like is this kind of comes off as like kind of sloppiness or lack of communication 
um, I remember I covered one case where a woman went missing and they found her body a week later and ended up burying her, but her mom had been looking for her and had given him a tattoo and they, and just no one connected the dots. And that seems to be one of the issues. And there was another case where a, someone ended up in the medical examiner's office for a year and a half. His family was looking for him. And later they, they there was a lawsuit because they found the ID and they just never connected it. So over of the 300 plus unidentified um, people that you were able to track, more than 200 were Wayne County, correct? Yeah, I probably don't want to get too specific with numbers because I'll probably be wrong, but I'm I'm recalling it was in the neighborhood of 260 were Wayne County and about 200 of those were city of Detroit and the total was in the 320 range. So yeah, it's overwhelmingly Wayne County. And um, and when you compare it to, I think uh, my colleague who reported on this, Justin Hicks, did a comparison to other major counties across the nation. And of those that he compared to, like we were we were second behind New York or, or Wayne County was second behind New York um, in, in unidentified bodies. And so can you talk a little bit about what you learned about the process and the dysfunction and and, and you know, now that this is coming to light, what might actually happen? Yeah, um, I a lot of it is there's I mean, there really is an odd scenario when you come up with an unidentified remain. It doesn't happen all that often um, that someone's not looking for someone who is then found. Um, a, a lot of the ones that you'll find are the reason why Wayne County cases seem to be high. Is there's a lot of homelessness or people with not but don't have homes and they uh, end up a lot of times a lot of the cases where people apparently freezing to death and vacant Detroit homes and they don't have family out necessarily looking for them. They've been in, perhaps living on the streets for decades. Um, I mean, those are some of the cases and other cases are uh, uh, body parts because they consider anything. I don't know, there was one case where a shoe came up, a shoe with a foot in it came up on the mm -hmm. beach. Like you'll get those kind of cases and, and they put, and what they do is they put it into um, databases. Like for instance, the name is database, which is how, how we reviewed these cases is uh, they allow you to put in unidentified remains and then people, from the public can go put in missing people and then they're also able to search and try to link up the two um and then there's now with technology we we visited the michigan state um school of Anthrop anthropology where they have a forensic department that they do a lot of dna extraction from bones and they're getting really good at that so they can have a little bit of tissue pull the dna and they put it into a database and then on the missing side of things, pe missing persons are their family and relatives are putting in DNA and they're trying to match those two up, which I think is becoming increasingly successful. Oh, good. You know, uh, Eric, uh, Gus also worked on a story, another story where people didn't want to talk to us. That was faster horses. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, we did a lot of reporting on the, the problems they were having there and they wouldn't talk to us. And then lo and behold, this year's faster horses came and they instituted, you know, five, six, seven, safety um you know and, and awareness you know safe partying kind of uh, uh things that they put practices and you know trauma patrols and all this stuff it, gus is there any chance even though wayne county's been mom that this kind of reporting could could lead to reform um uh, yeah i mean i don't know if it's due to my reporting i think it happened coincided almost or maybe it was a little early um, but Wayne County has since put up their own uh, unidentified database on their website. So before, I mean, it's just all this all this information was just behind the scenes and it wasn't anywhere easy to look at. So now they've created like their own website where they've got unidentified, unidentified persons. 
Um, and I just think it's going to increase. I don't think they put a lot of like, for instance, say one, one option would be you've got a body and it's ended up here. No one's come forward for it in two weeks. Maybe you go to the media. Um, maybe you and I think it was there just a waiting game that Wayne County was doing with a lot of these from what I can see. And I think it, it will prompt that. I mean, people, there are other avenues. You can try harder. And for instance, like Oakland County is a neighboring county and they have, you know, 400,000 less people, but they have one unidentified remains case that they're, they say they have. So that's and, remarkable. That's, that's insane. One compared to, you know, 200 and some, that's crazy. And, and some of the explanations for that were that they work very closely with their police and there's constant communication if they have an unidentified person, they kind of instruct the police, hey, go back to the scene, um, look around, talk to people. And it seems like there's a disconnect more in Wayne County than there is, for instance, in Oakland County. 10 years is an awful long time. So what is this story meant to you? And how do you feel now that it's you've got it published and the podcast, the podcast all recorded? Yeah, uh, I mean, it has been something that I've been thinking about, whether I work, was working on it or it was during those periods, long periods, some times when I was not working on it. It was always in the back of my head. Um, I always felt an, an unfulfilled obligation to Brianna and to her family, to her sister, to the people that were willing to share her story with me. And I knew, like I knew I was going to report it at some point. I didn't know like when. And the fact that it kind of came around rather quickly. I mean, we once we got going, I mean, it took months that we put everything back together. We did interviews, but it just feels good to get her story out there and I and to hear from her family like how how happy they are about it. I mean, it gives them a sense of closure because they knew all these things had happened to this person they loved, but the world didn't know about it. And their friends didn't know about it. Their family didn't know about a lot of these details. So Leonard, um, he's been getting an outpouring from people. Like it's not something he went around and talked like people knew a lot of people knew his daughter had died. They might have known that it was a suicide, but they didn't know all the backstory. And he was really in a position to sit around and tell everybody that or probably didn't feel comfortable with it. And I think now he feels this kind of like relief himself that the story is out there that people know about his daughter and the injustices that she endured. Well, you had a story 10 years ago. We we held off on telling it. In a way, I, I'm sorry you had to work so hard for a decade, but I think that those 10 years and the work you put in uh, made this such a more uh, you know, forceful story uh, and possibly a story for change and really honored um, the life of Brianna and the people who loved her and her family. Uh, just remarkable work. Yeah, um, I should get 10 years for every story I work on. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nice try. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I get, that's kind of what gave me the flexibility was I didn't have a deadline and I was doing this kind of, you know, my on the side a lot. So um, it didn't have that kind of pressure with the deadline and was able to really, um, you know, dig in deeper and take my time on it. Well, I think these are the kind of stories that not only grip people, but can lead to reform and change and, and shine a light on the things that, that aren't working right. And uh, thank you for your efforts on this story. It's fantastic. And I'm going to link to it, of course, in my column and encourage everyone to to go spend some time with this because like I said, it, it's about a systemic problem, but it, it's also about human beings. And I think that's what makes it all the more compelling. All right, and uh, I, I, on behalf of Brianna, on behalf of her father, her sister, her aunt, the people that really wanted to get the story out, 
I'm sure everyone's thankful that MLive allowed this, you know, to, to make its way to the world. Well, great work, Gus. Thanks for coming on to Behind the Headlines today to talk about the Gus Burns. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for coming back and talking about the journey it took for you to report and write this story. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. Good to see you again. And that's it for another episode of Behind the Headlines.